0: Today is the second of a two-part series that's going to get us ready for a Radical Unity experience that starts next week. It's called Renewing the Mind. Renewing the Mind. We have to have our minds renewed in order to get our brains ready for the fall series, which is called Radical Unity. We as a culture are fighting. We as a culture are outraged. We as a culture are looking for ways to divide and accuse and separate now I know a lot of the, the, the big time voices of outrage are at the at the extremes, but the the voices at the extreme edges are trying to pull us all into their outrage, right? To get clicks, to get likes, to get votes, to get money. And and we are saying here in this two-week little series. We're not gonna do that. We're gonna think differently. We're not gonna think first about self-protection and division. We're not gonna think first about tribalism. We're not gonna think first that, that you're the enemy or that, or that you're a threat. We're gonna have a renewed mind. I'll show you how much we as a society are on a hair trigger of outrage. Let's talk Popeye's chicken sandwich. Now, this is the big deal this week. Nothing on earth is more pure than a fried chicken sandwich, right? Chick-fil-A turned the world upside down, and now every fast food restaurant is trying to have their version of the Chick-fil-A sandwich. Popeye's chicken came out with theirs, and guess what? It's chicken and bread. It's amazing, I know. It's incredible, right? And so the world went crazy for Popeye's chicken sandwiches. We're talking about hours-long lines and a big online debate and discussion about what is better, the Chick-fil-A sandwich or the Popeye's sandwich. People went crazy, right? And there was this wonderful burgeoning of beauty around Popeye's chicken sandwiches. And then, of course, what do we do? Outrage. Outrage. It began with a Popeye's worker who slipped and fell while making that chicken sandwich. And somebody just started saying, well, maybe they're working too hard over there, too much grease, and is it really healthy for you anyway? Person's in the hospital. Here we go. We're ready to fight. Let's fight. This picture went viral of a Popeye's worker just exhausted making too many chicken sandwiches, and she just out, out and back and she's exhausted. And that, millions of people retweeted that and commented about this work. And then of course that created a big debate about whether our fast food workers are underpaid and that $15 minimum wage and politics and fighting back and forth over minimum wage workers. A Tennessee man sued Popeyes because he tried to get a Popeye sandwich and they were sold out. Sued them for $5,000, that's going on right now. Then, medium.com and the San Francisco Chronicle uh, talked about whether or not chicken as an edible thing is even ethical and pointed to two things. Number one was the ice raids that took place at a chicken processing plant. So that turned it into a whole immigration debate and a racism debate. And then this box, very funny Popeye's chicken box, I think it's the greatest (laughs) box ever, that created a whole argument about how ethical it is to raise chickens the way they're raised to make the Popeye's chicken sandwich. That was this week in America. And and the vice, uh, vice vice.com put it this way. America once again has destroyed something beautiful by silly outrage. That's what we do. We destroy something beautiful by outrage. Now, why do we do that? We do it because our brains are wired for outrage. We talked about that a little bit. I won't get into the brain science as much as, as we did last week, but our brains are wired for outrage. We can't handle good news well at all. Our brains are wired to see bad news because if we see bad news, we see a threat. If we see a threat, we'll respond. If we respond, we survive, right? If our brains were just kind of mushed with good news and happiness and unicorns and rainbows, we'd be um, you know, uh, uh, six feet under real quick because we don't see threats, right? So our brains are wired to see threats, so we're not wired to see good news, and we're not wired to see good in other people as a first reflex, right? Um, around here, I, uh, you know, we're, we just love to teach and preach the optimism of the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. We love to celebrate the incredibly good things that are happening in our world. And so I've delivered a handful of messages that focus on how good the world is right now. And I show statistics and charts and data from history, from modern studies, and and I prove without doubt that the world has never been as good as it is right now, that the world has never been as moral, it has never been as peaceful, it has never been as healthy, it has never been as prosperous as it is right now. And you know what I get from our own Rancho Community Church? Silence and stares. And some, some, huh, what? You mean the world has never been as good and moral and healthy and prosperous as it is right now? Well, that's because that's a fact. And here's all the data. Here's the history. Here's the charts. Can't be. It can't be. Our brains aren't wired to receive good news. And if you want to get amens and hallelujahs in church, Preach this message. Preach angrily that the world is bad, that the world is getting worse, that the world has never been as bad as it is now, that we are the good few, and the world is going to heck in a handbasket. You get amens and hallelujahs all day long. Why? Because we're wired for bad news. We're wired to see threats. That's affirming to us. That negativism, pessimism, threat perception is wired into our brains. And so the conclusion of our brains is, if you're not like me, you must be a threat. If you're not like me, you must be a threat. This is tribalism, and we are in a, an era of neo-tribalism. Tribalism is this. Tribalism is behavior and attitudes that stem from strong loyalty to one's own homogenous group. Now, not all of this is, is bad. I don't, I don't wanna say that all tribalism is bad. We need a sense of family. Our, our family literally is our tribe, right? And because we're family and because we share oftentimes the same blood and the same life experience, our families are fairly homogenous. Every once in a while there's a stinker that comes in and messes that whole thing up uh, with some differing opinion. Uh, But largely it's a homogenous group, and that's our tribe. And that's comfortable for us. It feels safe. It feels affirming. And so if we can be involved in, in, say, a little larger tribe with people who are similar to us, not just our family, but similar to us who share the same perspectives, roughly the same backgrounds, Our tribe gets a little larger, we feel a little more safe, we feel a little more affirmed. But the thought of of befriending people outside of our tribe, that can be a little daunting because they can be perceived as a threat. So we need some tribalism to have a sense of family and security and safety, but let's not get locked into tribalism. Tribalism was necessary for survival when we were primitive. It's necessary for us to feel some sense of affirmation and sameness now but we can't get locked in. We can't get locked in. Locked into tribalism is to be locked into destruction, and we're seeing that right before our eyes in our own country. Now tribalism is based on certain structures that are just you know, sort of handed down to us by genetics, by family, by just you know, who we are at a, at a basic level. So our tribalism can be based initially on ethnicity, nationality, gender, sexuality, economy, and age. These are the easy tribes, you know, and if you can, can kind of nail five of those six, well, you are, you are an inseparable group, right? But then there's other things that we choose to be involved in that also make up a tribe. Our political causes, our social causes, our religious causes. And the more we add to the list, the smaller our tribe gets. And that's what's happening now. There's an ebb and flow throughout every civilization where people get tribal and then there's a national cry for unity. And then, and then in that national cry for unity, we start to believe the best in each other and we become you know, kind of a, a broader, more diverse family. And then the more diverse we get, the more threat we feel, and then we separate into a tribe. And so right now, we're just in an age of, of neo-tribalism. And at some point, I hope and pray very soon, we will recognize that this isn't good for anybody and that there will be a period of unity and a period of calm, right? But this ebb and flow happens all the time, and you can chart it in every civilization that ever existed. We're in an age of neo-tribalism right now, and and what we're saying this fall is don't get sucked into it. Resist tribalism. Resist it. Last week, we talked about Romans 12, 1 through 3. This week, we're going to uh, dabble in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2 over uh, this renewed mind, the call to have the mind of Christ, which resists tribalism and really strives for harmony. 1 Corinthians 1.10 says this. If you know Romans 12, this will sound familiar. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. It, it starts the same way Romans 12 did. I appeal, I beg you, I plead with you, treat each other as brothers and sisters by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Live in harmony with each other. This is the pleading of the New Testament. The Radical Unity series we're gonna start next week is a survey of the New Testament. Every single bit of it, every single syllable is urging this story. Radical unity, oneness, unity with God, unity in the church, and unity globally. Let there be no divisions in the church, rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Now this is a church that was incredibly diverse. It's a church in Corinth. Corinth was, the center hub of trade between east and west and north and south. Everything went through Corinth. So they were as diverse, probably, of a city as has ever existed on the earth. And then there's this Christian church right in the middle of of the city. And everybody who's going back and forth, north and south, east to west, anybody who's a follower of Christ is going to worship in that church. A very diverse church. Jew and Gentile, Jew and Roman, right? The rich, the poor, the sick, the healthy, the powerful, the the powerless, the ones that have voice and the ones that do not. They're all worshiping together. And it was a train wreck. I mean, if you read 1 Corinthians, it's a train wreck from cover to cover. The Apostle Paul rarely says one good thing about the church of Corinth. And they're fighting over their cultural differences. They're fighting over their religious difference. Who is right? Who is wrong? Who was baptized by Paul? Baptized by Apollos? They're, they're, whose little sub-micro-religious tribe do they belong to? They're arguing over morality. I mean, you can understand that the Jewish people had a heightened view of morality, particularly sexual morality, because they had the Old Testament law. And the Old Testament law uh, drove their perspective of morality. And it was very strict when it comes to sexuality. The Romans were, I mean, just hedonist. Anything goes, and so they don't have any barriers when it comes to sexual morality. So they come to Jesus, the Jews come to Jesus, and they're fighting about sexual morality, and you can read in in the book of Corinthians, they're dealing with some serious, kind of gross stuff in there, right? And then there's fighting over personal conflicts. There's personal conflicts that are spilling out into lawsuits, and the apostle Paul's saying, stop this, your brothers and sisters, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. First Corinthians 1.30. God has united you with Jesus Christ. Here's that plea for unity. It begins with our relationship with God. God has united you with Jesus Christ. For our benefit, God made Jesus to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. You know what word I love the most in there? He, he did it, he did it, he forgave us, he made us holy, he made us pure. Despite our failures, we know how much we fail. God says, you know what, I don't see you by your failures. I see you through the righteousness of Christ. Jesus died to pay for your sins. Therefore, God says, I don't see you as a sinner. I don't see you as a failure. And you can know that right now. Right now, sitting right where you are, God does not look at you as a failure. He does not look at you as a sinner. He's not disappointed in you. He looks at you as a dearly loved, holy and blameless child. Why? Because it's a gift he gave through Jesus Christ. It's a gift. And every week we gather to remind ourselves of just how much he loves us and prove that through Jesus Christ, as 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, for our benefit. And so here is a a holy and a perfect God, and here we are as, as failures, fallen, failed people. If a perfect God can perfectly love failed people, can't failed people perfectly love failed people? That's the whole motivation of this, is when we know the love of God more completely, the more we'll be able to share that with each other. And that is proven through Christ, who is the wisdom of God. He's the fullness of God. Now, this whole message of unity is called in the New Testament the mystery of God. The mystery of God. And the reason why it's a mystery is because it's been hidden until the time of Christ. The Jews thought it was about them. They had a God they called Yahweh. Yahweh revealed himself to the Jews. Uh, God said to the Jews, at at one point, I'm gonna be a blessing to every tribe, tongue, and nation. The Jews did not really grasp that. The brain can't grasp that, right? The brain is tribal. And and so the Jews understandably thought that God was only about blessing them. And, And so when Jesus comes and messes up that whole deal and Jesus says, no, God's actually the father of everyone, the Jews couldn't hang with that. None of us could, right? You have thousands of years of thinking that God is only about blessing you. Then Jesus came and messes up that whole deal and now God's about blessing everybody and then I have to bless everybody. God's about global unity and harmony. I mean, the brain gets just crazy about that. And everybody of every religion always believes that God's about blessing me and my perspective and my tribe and my opinion and my crew here. And there's threats out there to turn that around that God is actually dedicated to blessing everyone everywhere, it's difficult. It's difficult, so this message of unity is incredibly difficult. It's called the great mystery of God that has been kept hidden for ages. 1 Corinthians 2, seven says this. This wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God. His plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. What is God saying here? Our ultimate glory is the unity of all humankind in love. That's the mystery that had been hidden for so many years. Uh, Ephesians also speaks about the mystery of God, and that is to bring Jew and Gentile together, the whole world together in Christ, together in love. That's the great mystery, and that is what this verse says is the glory of humankind. The glory of humankind is our unity together, not our tribalism. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, for who can know the Lord's thoughts? And that's a, a quote from the Old Testament. Who can know the mind of God? The Apostle Paul says, "Uh, I can. (laughs) We can know the mind of God. Why? We understand these things because we have the mind of Christ. This is so beautiful, right? Who knows the mind of God? That was the big question of the Old Testament. No one can know the mind of God. Well, now we can because we see Jesus. Everything that Jesus was, everything that Jesus is as the resurrected Lord, everything he did that we can read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, everything he revealed to us through the apostles in the word of God in the New Testament, everything that Jesus stood for is the full wisdom of God. Everything that Jesus was is the mind of God. So who can know the mind of God? Well, I can and you can, why? Because we have the mind of Christ. We see how Jesus thought, we see what Jesus said, we see what Jesus did, that is the mind of God and the mind of God is about love. The mind of God is about unity. So let's think differently. This is the renewed mind, let's think differently. We we can think in a way that is not just trapped in human nature, not just trapped in self-protection, not trapped in tribalism, not trapped in, in brain chemistry. We can be free from that, to think differently, to have the mind of Christ. We don't need to think of ourselves first. Jesus didn't, that's the mind of Christ, we don't have to. We don't have to think about getting our way. Jesus didn't, we don't have to. We don't have to think about getting attention or getting glory, or getting recognition. Jesus didn't do that, we don't have to do that. We have the mind of Christ. We don't have to think tribally. Jesus didn't exist for the preservation of his Jewish tribe, he lived for the betterment of everyone, and we follow him. We don't have to think about our group only, the people who are the same as us only. Jesus didn't, and we follow him. We can think differently. We can think of others as more important than ourselves. That's what the Word of God calls us to do. That, that's a whole reframing of the mind, renewing of the mind, having the mind of Christ. I'm deciding that others are more important than me. We can think about making other people's lives easier, more successful, and happier. So as you go around your office, you, your mind can be less focused on you, your success in your office, and more focused on the success of others. Imagine that kind of life. Where well, you go to work, not tomorrow, because what? It's Labor Day. But Tuesday, you, um, you go into work and, and, and the renewed mind, the mind of Christ, walks into that office and says, you know what, I'm going to make other people a little more successful today. I'm going to make other people a little happier today. And you know, what, you know what study after study indicates? The more selfless we are and the more of a servant we are, the more everybody rises, including the selfless servant. Now, don't do it to get better at your, you know, more, make more money at your job or whatever. Do it to have the mind of Christ. Live for the benefit of others. We can even go so far as to sacrifice ourselves for the benefit of people groups that we will never meet, that we will never encounter. But this is true, like advanced level mind of Christness, right? Is when we start advocating and living and sacrificing for the benefit of other tribes that we will never come across, even tribes that we would previously consider to be enemies, We can think about other groups prospering. We can think about the plight of people who are in far off lands that we'll never come across, the plight of Syrian refugees, the plight of displaced Muslim Rohingyas from Myanmar, Central Americans fleeing gang violence. These are things that our natural mind would consider those groups perhaps threats. The mind of Christ would not. The mind of Christ would say, how can we benefit them? It takes a renewing of the mind. So how can we develop the mind of Christ. How can we renew the mind? Just a couple things. First, most importantly, and you'll see this throughout our Radical Unity series, is to know the love of God for us and others. We talked about how Paul did that in Romans chapter 12. We talked about how Paul did that in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Always appealing. Look at how how magnificent and unconditional and deep and wide is the love of God. The more we can know that and receive that, the more our tank fills up to be able to give that to others unconditionally. So so we'll see this often. But I wanna encourage us today, strive for empathy. Strive for empathy. And the reason why I put strive in there is because empathy is hard. Empathy is hard. What is empathy? Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. This is very difficult. It takes intentionality. We are flooded with our own feelings. We're flooded with our own experience. And so when we walk around life, we are 99% consumed chemically with how we're feeling in the moment. That's what our brains are wired to do, to cause us to feel certain things in the moment, to encourage our survival. That's human nature. That's brain chemistry. Empathy says, I'm going to intentionally push past that, and I'm going to try to understand why you are feeling the way you feel. Why do you think the way you think? That takes work. It takes intentionality I was going through this, I thought, okay, well, who's the person more unlike me, and how could I possibly be empathetic towards that person? So the person more unlike me would be probably a black person, a woman who's gay, an atheist from the inner city, teenaged, and a political activist. That's probably the person more most unlike me. And, and if I'm gonna walk a road of, of empathy, I need to be able to interact with a person like her, and I need to understand why she feels the way she feels. So if you can just imagine, this is what I was imagining as I was putting this together, this part together, is is let's say she and I were meeting for coffee because we just decided it would be a good thing to do. It would not be natural, right? (laughs) There there would be nothing natural in our tribal worlds that would have us connect. But we're going to walk a road of empathy, so she and I are sitting down for coffee And it might be awkward at first, and we might try to have some small talk, but we would have very little in common. Over some time, we'll hear each other's stories, the backgrounds, and I will begin to understand why she thinks the way she thinks and why she feels the way she feels. And she'll begin to think the same thing about me. And over a period of time, maybe hours, (laughs) it would take some time, we would find some common ground. We might even find ourselves sharing a story here and there, sharing an experience here and there maybe even sharing an opinion here and there. And then we can find common ground. We can have admiration for each other. The threat level goes down. And I bet by the end of probably multiple hours, we might be brainstorming about how to fix some things together that's broken in this world. It can happen. And it would only happen if we strive for empathy. Now, that's a hypothetical situation. But I'm in a very real community of diverse friends right now as we speak. I'm in a, a, a network of ministers that ha, has over 1,000 ministers, probably 1,200, 1,300 ministers. I'm on a team of 15 people who've been called among them to help solve radical problems in our, in our network. So I'm in this group of 15, and it's intentionally diverse. There is black, white, Hispanic, men, women, young and old, straight and gay, inner city and rural, from every corner of the country and Christian beliefs that could not be more diverse. I'm on a group of 15 people, and we get together six times a year. I'm getting together with them in two weeks and I'm looking forward to it. We're in year two of a multi-year journey together and we are friends. We know each other's names. We know each other's kids' names, dogs' names. We know each other's stories. But I'm telling you, when we first sat down over a year ago, well over a year ago, when we first sat down in Chicago and we were seeing who's in the room, there was nothing that connected us together. We struggled, that first meeting was a struggle. It was a two-day meeting, it was a battle. By the end of that meeting, we were praying together, kind of you know, trying to find those common grounds and common language, and now I can tell you, they're all friends of mine. They're all friends of mine. It's been a wonderfully enriching experience. And to be able to have that group that is from every possible tribe gathering together, becoming friends, finding common ground, solving problems together, I'm telling you, it has been wonderful. And then to to intentionally do that in my relationships just around town, getting to know people and their stories and who they are and what they're passionate about and why they're passionate, it's an incredible journey. It's enriching. That's a striving for empathy. And then finally, strive for kindness. Strive for kindness. If you are angry about what's happening in our world today, for whatever reason, and there's a lot to be angry about, there's a lot to be heartbroken about, even as Laura Lynn shared earlier, there is a lot to be rightfully heartbroken about, needless violence. But, but if, if there are issues, whatever the issue might be that has led you to anger, I want to ask you, through this radical series that begins next week, just try to tone that down. Try to tone your anger down. And I'll just tell you, very little is actually accomplished by anger, right? It's usually best accomplished in a relationship. If you're tense about politics, religion, social issues, I'm gonna ask you, take it easy. Find some spots to relax. Bring relaxation into every day of your life. And maybe every week find some kind of a Sabbath moment, a, a time of rest every week. Just relax a little bit. If, if you are a little short, maybe a little rude, maybe a little tense, maybe a little biting about how you speak to people, choose the path of kindness. Intentionally choose kindness. And there are things you could do very intentionally to become a more kind person. There's actually a book written about that, How God Changes Your Brain, Andrew Newberg. Andrew Newberg how God Changes Your Brain. It's not a Christian book per se, but it's, it's about how doing things that have to do with God makes our brains healthier and more kind Faith in a loving, benevolent God is the best thing you can do to pursue kindness and have a healthy brain. And brain science says this, brain scans say this, if somebody believes in a God who is angry, vengeful, and wrathful, their brain is unhealthy. If somebody believes in a loving, benevolent, forgiving, kind God, their brain is healthy. Isn't that interesting? I'm telling you, the people I know who favor God being this vengeful, angry, wrathful God, they're not healthy people. People. Generally speaking, the people who live in love, what Jesus said, right? Love God, love others, it, this whole, all the law resides and rests on that. That's a healthy person. Find deep relaxation, the Bible calls this prayer and meditation. Just find times to relax, slow the brain down, be quiet. Maybe just in stillness. Maybe you're not really praying actively, but just be in stillness. I did that on, on the sabbatical on a pretty regular basis. And I'm telling you what it does to just bring a sense of peace and kindness is powerful. Optimism creates well being. Choosing to be optimistic. That's very difficult. Some of you are wired to see the bad in everything. I'm telling you right now, some of you are going to walk outside and immediately, it's hot. Look at the day, right? The East Coast is being swallowed up in a Cat 5, right? Just take in the day, take in the moment, take in the good things around you, life and family and SoCal and all the beautiful things going on here. But some of us are wired to see the negative. Be optimistic. Science is clear. Men in particular, listen up. If you are pessimistic, and I have not met a pessimistic person who thinks they're pessimistic, so I don't know what we're gonna do here, but. Men, if you're pessimistic, if you're sitting next to a pessimistic person, just do one of these right now. And they'll say, I'm pessimistic. You're the worst, all right. Um, If you're pessimistic, men, you have two times more likelihood of dying from heart disease. That's what pessimism, pessimism, (laughs) pessimism does to a man. Women do not have similar negative health effects when it comes to pessimism. But women, let me tell you this. If you're pessimistic, your man that you're married to wishes he had heart disease. It is rough living with a pessimist. Rough. I don't know by experience. (laughs) Just in case my wife is sitting in this service. She's wonderful. Be optimistic. It is a choice to be optimistic, to see the best, right? And then finally, and this is a big one, ready, you note takers, here you go, smile. Just smiling, just the act of smiling right now, try it, I can see you. Just smiling makes your brain incredibly healthy, incredibly healthy. And this is the mind of Christ, what the Bible calls joy, rejoice, right? Those are the biblical words, joy, rejoice, rejoice, smile. Here's the brain science, ready? By the way, this pen is sanitized because just those of you who are going to be grossed out. Uh, they put uh, hundreds of people in brain scan machines and put a pen in somebody's lips. Scan the brain. That's a frown. You, you can't really smile when it's in your lips. The brain, unhealthy. Then they put that same pen in these people's teeth. That's a smile. Just a pen, either in the lips or the teeth changed the brain activity from unhealthy to healthy just by smiling. Smile. You guys may know how face the face works. The, the, the face at rest is a frowny face. It takes work to smile. It takes work to be optimistic. It takes work to choose kindness. It, ch- it takes work to choose empathy. It takes work. I, we are gonna call each other to put in the work toward radical unity and it begins next week. It's gonna be fun, I guarantee you. It's gonna be difficult at times. We're gonna see a New Testament vision of unity that you may not like at first. I'm guaranteeing you that. But let's walk this journey of putting in the work to renew our mind, have the mind of Christ, and embrace this vision of radical unity. And it will change your life. It will change your brain. It will change your relationship. It will change how you impact the world around you. Are you ready for this? It starts next week. Let's do it. Let's pray. Our God and Father, thank you. Thank you. That you're not afraid to to challenge us, to challenge human nature, even to challenge the the very wiring of our brains, which which you created to promote survival, but you created us for more than that. You created us for love. You created us for selflessness. You created us to have the mind of Christ. You actually created us to be like Jesus and to even walk the road of self-sacrifice so that others might thrive. To, to tear down the walls between people and build bridges between people. God, this is the New Testament vision that Jesus came to introduce, the great mystery of heaven coming to earth. It is the great vision of revelation as all tribes and tongues and nations are gathered together in perfect unity with each other and perfect unity with you. Help us to see this and help us to live this for your glory and as your word says today, even for our benefit, but mostly for the benefit of others. In Christ's name we pray and everybody said... Amen.